You'll join me in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 14. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. You can find that on page 984 in the Blue ESV Bible. The title of our sermon this morning is Putting On. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are on, forgive, and love. If you've ever been on a sports team or if you've ever played a sport competitively, you've probably heard the phrase, look good, feel good, play good. And the idea is that you want to make sure that you have a nice uniform and you have the latest look and design. You look really sharp as you get out onto the field. And if you look better in your clothes, you feel better about what you're going to do because you look more professional. And so the idea that is that in the end, you will, you will play better. You will perform better. Now, sometimes the best an athlete has to offer is how they look. So it better be good. Now, outside of sports, though, we, we understand that what we wear says a lot about what we think about the environment we're going to be in and what we want to communicate to others. Like it or not, this is, this is simply a fact of humanity. We generally don't wear the same clothes to a nice restaurant that we wear when we mow the lawn or go to the store or wear to church or to a wedding. Now, some of you don't care at all, and it shows, but that's another conversation. We can talk about that later. But there is actually research that shows that the clothes you wear change the way that you not only are perceived, but the way that you perform. So the old adage, look good, feel good, play good, has some truth to it, not just in sports, but in the rest of life as well. There are good reasons to always so-called dress the part, or as you often hear interview coaches say, dress in your interview for the job you want, not for the job that, you're, that they're hiring for. In other words, if you want to be a worker at a desk, if that's the job they're hiring for, and you really want to be the manager, then dress the part of the manager. One study concluded that dressing smart is important for your confidence and sense of self-empowerment. But your style does more than just send messages to your mind or to others. It actually impacts how you think. Professional dress, one study found, increases abstract thinking and gives people a a broader perspective. The formality of clothing might not only influence the way others perceive a person and how people perceive themselves, but could influence decision-making in important ways through the influence on processing style. And their reasoning is that professional attire creates social distance. When we're more socially distant, we tend to think in more distant abstract terms. In socially distant settings, we address people by their title rather than the more intimate first name. Even after controlling for other statuses, students wearing more formal clothing show stronger inclinations toward abstract processing and academic and career success. Now, I thought about all of this because this morning as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Colossians, we're thinking about another kind of clothing that we all wear and what that communicates, not just in the physical sense, but more so in this case, in the spiritual. Last week, Paul told us that we need to put off certain things in our lives. And this week, he's going to tell us what we need to put on. Have you, ever, have you ever showed up to an event terribly underdressed? Someone maybe invited you to an event or to dinner and you just assumed you were, you were going to Chick-fil-A, although 
you should wear a suit and tie to Chick-fil-A, but again, another instance. Uh, but you thought maybe, you know, it wasn't a big deal, and then all of a sudden you show up to a nice restaurant and you look around and realize the preferred attire is not shorts and a t-shirt. It's a little bit uncomfortable. It never feels good to be underdressed. And, and in the same way as Christians, as people who are in Christ, there are certain things that we must be putting on day by day. And Paul is communicating something to us here about what we put on so that we don't go out into the world underdressed as God's people. We want to put on that which will readily identify us to make sure that we're, we're not spiritually underdressed. We've been instructed on what to put off, and now that it's off, we just need to put something else on so that we are not unclothed entirely. So what do we put on? Let's read what Paul tells us in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, I love how in the middle of this letter, Paul gives the Colossians this blast of encouragement. He reminds them of who they are in Christ. Now, remember, we've seen multiple times through this letter, Paul is telling the Colossians that when they become Christians, this old man or this old woman was put to death, and they've been now brought to new life in Christ. So they need to look at their lives, remember who they are in Christ, and then live Accordingly, they no longer walk in the old ways of life, but are new creations. And as, as such, are able to put off the old man. They're able to put off the old woman. They're able to live life without an obligation to sin, to live lives of repentance, to live in such a way that they can be free from the entangling snares of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So Paul has challenged them for a bit now, and he's, he's really driving home this point. But because, uh, before he gets to what we are to put on, he just pauses for a moment and he reminds them who they are. It's beautiful what he says. He says, you are God's chosen ones, and he reminds them that they are holy and beloved. Isn't that wonderfully encouraging? Paul's writing the same thing to you and I. If you are in Christ. And remember, Paul's writing to a church full of Gentiles. And those Gentiles had some sense that Israel in the Old Covenant were called God's chosen ones. But now, now they have been grafted in. And so you and I as Christians, that we too are the sons and daughters of Abraham. We are a part of God's family. We are his sons and daughters. We have a heavenly inheritance. Christ is our Savior. We are his children. We are God's chosen people. And so in the same way that God told the Israelites... He tells us in Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you. That's it, brothers and sisters. 
Why am I one of God's chosen ones? Why are you one of God's chosen ones? Why am I declared holy and beloved by the creator of all the universe? Because God loves me. And God loves you, his child. We have been set apart by God himself. So often that sounds cliche because we hear it so often. But how true it is. Was it because we deserved it? No. Of course we didn't deserve it. Is it because we earned it? No. He tells us very clearly it's not because we've earned such titles. It was simply because God so loved the world that He gave His Son that we could be the sons and daughters of God. Christian, do you believe that you are loved by God? I mean, truly and honestly, do you have a deep sense that God truly loves you as His child? Or are you walking through a life assuming that you've disappointed him and that, you, you, that he's mad at you and frustrated with you because he doesn't really see in you what he was hoping to see in you? We all tend toward that mindset. But God's love is far greater, is far purer than anything that we can fathom. And so Paul reminds us, Paul reminds us here, the Lord isn't shaming you from heaven. He's not shaking his head with his, his head in his hand, sort of disgusted in disbelief, regretting that he saved you in the first place. He loves you. He takes care of you. And when the world puts you up on the stage to mock you and scold you and ask, who could love such a person? Who could ever want anything to do with someone like this? Who would ever spend time or effort or money on this kind of person? The Lord powerfully proclaims, I will and I do. He is mine. She is mine. They will forever be mine because I have declared they are holy and beloved as my children. They are my chosen people. And so Paul gives us this encouragement. Are you suffering from an identity crisis? Do you struggle to know who you are? If so, let's put it to rest here and now. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are, as Paul says here, one of God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Do you really need to know anything else? It is not enough to know you are an object of the saving, sovereign love of an infinite, righteous, and powerful, and holy God. Is that not enough? Brothers and sisters, do you believe that about yourself? I hope you do, because it's exactly what the Bible says about you. And so Paul gives this boost of encouragement that we can be reminded that we are in Christ so that we are all the more ready to now grasp onto what Paul is calling us to put on because that is the fuel that we need to put it on. We've put off these vices, all of these things we looked at last week that we're so easily attracted to, that we're so easily ensnared by, so that now we can put on our Christian apparel. We have an obligation, we have a responsibility to examine our lives as loved people of God and now consider what to put on. And that says a lot about what we are in the world to accomplish. What does your spiritual wardrobe Look like? Well, the first thing Paul shows us in verses 12 and 13 is that we are to put on Christian virtues. 
Our spiritual wardrobe, as Paul lays it out here, consists of five articles of spiritual clothing. These are distinct Christian virtues. The idea is that when we have these on, they identify us. This is like our uniform as Christians to those uh, who want to continue with the clothing metaphor. If we're putting on Christian virtues, it's in the same way that we can readily identify a police officer or a firefighter when we see them in uniform. So too, we should be able to recognize that a person is a Christian when we see these five articles of spiritual clothing. So what are they? Well, the first he mentions, is a compassionate heart. Now, one of the interesting things about how the world responds to Christianity is that depending on where we are in the world, as we express our ethics, some embrace certain aspects of the faith while completely rejecting other aspects of the faith. So when we look at things like Paul told us to put off last week, the world says, there's no need to put those things off. That's who they are, that's the desires they have, and, and, you should, and they should be able to pursue those, and you shouldn't tell them that they should have different desires. And to do so is, is hateful. It's not loving. But then you say, as a Christian, I have an obligation to have a compassionate heart, and the same people will applaud that ethic. And so they want to reject some and applaud the other. It depends where you are in the world, what kind of response you get on any given issue. But as Christians, we don't have a pick-and-choose mentality of the Scriptures. We put off what the Lord calls us to put off. We put on what the Lord calls us to put on. So we're called to put on compassionate hearts. Now, did you know that in the history of the world, no single group has contributed more to humanity in terms of education, health care, the welfare and protection of children and women, the fight against slavery. No other group in the history of the world has even come anywhere close to that of the church. Did you know all that? The church is to this day the single largest provider of health care and education in the world, especially in the poorest regions of the world where the church's outreach is often the only care available to people. Why is that? Because the Lord calls us to put on compassionate hearts. In 1948, the United Nations put out a formal declaration of human rights, and the whole thing was clearly based on Christian principles. You see how far the United Nations has come. But at the time, it was based on these principles, so much so that some of the Muslim nations objected completely and refused to sign it on the basis that it conflicted with Sharia law. Ironically, Karl Marx rejected the idea of human rights as a product of Christianity. Well-known critical theorist and outspoken atheist Jürgen Habermas stated, the individual morality of conscience, human rights and democracy is the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. And so, too, rejected it. So this is a very distinct item of Christian apparel, isn't it? The world recognizes it to be distinctly Christian. And it must be ever-present in the Christian's life. We are moved to show compassion, merciful care to others, regardless of who they are, because the Lord has shown merciful compassion to us, even when we least deserved it. 
One commentator writes, it is not too much to say that everything that has ever been done for the aged, the sick, the weak in body and in mind, the animal, the child, the woman, has been done under the inspiration of Christianity. The gospel brings with it sympathy and a tenderness of heart. That is one of the great glories of the gospel. And Paul is telling us here that if we are new creatures in Christ, we must be a compassionate people. Secondly, Paul points to kindness. The second item of spiritual clothing, it seems simple enough, doesn't it? Kindness. I love the letter George Bernard Shaw once wrote to Winston Churchill. It said, Enclosed are two tickets to the opening night of my first play. Bring a friend if you have one. (laughs) Churchill, being Churchill, replied, Dear Mr. Shaw, unfortunately I'll be unable to attend the opening night of your play due to a prior engagement. Please send me tickets for a second night if you have one. (laughs) Now, These two men obviously were engaged in some playful sarcasm with one another, and some of us are more skilled at bartering in the skills of biting sarcasm than others. But there is a difference when those words are exchanged with affection instead of when they are exchanged in harshness and bitterness. The word kindness doesn't simply mean that we go around complimenting each other all the time or that we're always patting each other on the back for everything. Kindness isn't some kind of soft, uh, some might say feminine attribute that everyone needs to take on. The word kindness was used to describe wine, which had grown a bit more mild with age. It's lost its harshness. The burn has worn off a little bit. The same root word was used when Jesus said, my yoke is easy. In other words, my yoke is kind. Kindness, you recall, is the, is the fruit of the Spirit. And, and, and it's part of God's nature. Paul wrote in Romans 2.4 that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Kindness is at the heart of Paul's regular exhortation that we, that we die to ourselves, that we live for the advantage of others and not seek our own gain. And it is Christ's kindness, it is Christ's generosity that should be the ground and motivation of our kindness toward others. It's the kindness that leads us to be aware and to be sensitive to others and their needs. It means that we are sincerely and practically committed to the welfare of others, recognizing that the world does not revolve around me. Kindness makes us gentle toward others. It makes us patient in times of trial. It makes us Christ-like as we reflect His very nature and character. And we see something of this, this compassionate heart and this kindness. Remember, remember when, when the man, the man, had fallen and had been beaten and left on the side of the road, left to die. And all of the religious people just sort of walked around him in Jesus' parable. They wanted nothing to do with him. And yet, who was it that came? It was the man who was despised by all he was telling his story to. 
the man who they wanted nothing to do with because of who he was ethnically, because of who he was culturally, that laid it all down in kindness and compassion and picked up this bruised and broken man and put him on his donkey and brought him to town and bore the expense that he would be cared for. That is compassion. That is kindness. That is the character of God showing mercy to his people. The third thing that Paul points to is humility. Now, we all get a sort of a sense of how difficult this one is, right? Have you ever had someone tell you that they are humble? I hear people say that sometimes, and I sort of scratch my head in disbelief. That is the absolute challenge of humility, emptying ourselves of pride to the extent that if we are to be humble, it is because we do not think that we are, and yet we continually live our lives in such a way that we are thinking least about ourselves and our own concerns, our own joys and needs and and fears and wants and ambitions, and instead concerning ourselves with the well-being of others. Humility is a disposition in which we are reminded that others, other people, are worth far more and are as dear to God as we consider ourselves to be. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the Bible nails us in our inherent lack of humility in this command and how we are to love our neighbor, doesn't it? The Bible's telling us, the Lord Jesus is telling us, hey, you know how it is that you think about yourself and how you wish other people would treat you the way you want them to treat you? Yes, now do that same thing for others. In our flesh, we do not like this. True humility can only be a Christian virtue because true humility is truly a work of the Holy Spirit of God. Humility is what enables husbands to love their wives and for wives to accept their husbands' leadership and for parents to lovingly respect their children and bring them up in the Lord and children to follow their parents' lead by obeying the well-intentioned instructions that they are given. It's what enables Christians to, to bear one another's burdens, to forgive each other, to live in the church in peace and love and unity despite our differences. If we want a reminder of what true humility is, though, we must remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ humbled himself by taking on human flesh, putting himself in the place to undergo our temptations, experiencing human misunderstandings and misrepresentations and mocking rejections and judgments. He bore our sins in his body on a tree without a word. He suffered, he died, and he was buried. Why? Was it for his own sake? (laughs) Christ was perfectly and in every way, even before he took on flesh, in perfect union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he lived in perfect unfettered union and communion as a member of the Trinity without any need for us, without any need to condescend to creation. And yet, he did it anyway. And he didn't just do it. He did it in such a way that he took on the lowest end of all that he might die so that we might live. 
Do you want to know what true humility really looks like? Do you think yourself a humble person? Well, your comparison is not everyone else. Your comparison is Christ. What does true humility look like? Christ's humility for our sakes should be the grounds and motivation for us to not live ultimately for ourselves, but for the sake of others. That's true humility. Fourth, Paul points to the spiritual item of clothing of meekness. Now, Ron Swanson, and more close to home, Steve Reed's favorite basketball coach of all time, Bobby Knight, once said when he was coaching Texas Tech University, the meek may well inherit the earth, but they rarely get rebounds. And when the word meekness is spoken, when people think about what that is, they contemplate that, this is the idea that people have, that meekness is weakness. But I remember many years ago now, I think over a decade ago, a very well-respected preacher who back then was a young man but is no longer a young man, but he was then and is now an elder of your church named Russ Jenkins. He preached a wonderful sermon called, Meekness is Not Weakness. That simple phrase has stuck with me all of those years. But that's the common conception of what meekness is, isn't it? It is assumed that meekness is laziness or a weakness of heart or a weakness of courage. It's sort of a fear or a lack of fortitude and aggression when called for or a tendency to be soft or the tendency to be a pushover. That's what people think. But it doesn't take long looking at Jesus' life and looking at Paul's life and realizing this certainly is not what the Bible has in mind. A well-rounded Christian, a Christian like Christ, is a Christian who can be one who is full of compassion, who is full of tenderness, who is full of love, who is humble, while simultaneously having a righteous anger toward evil, an appropriate aggressiveness toward hostility and sin to protect those who they are called to protect, and to have courage and conviction to stand up to hostility and oppression and attack. Jesus invited little children into his lap. He comforted the poor and blind and drove out money changers from the temple and stood his ground against the religious leaders and preached in ways that he knew would get the blood of those around him boiling. He did it all. Paul, he, he suffered many abuses. He took it all like a man. He spent a lot of time in prison, but he never backed down from the conviction that Jesus Christ must be proclaimed. He even stood in confrontation with his fellow apostle Peter when he himself was in error. So you see, Jesus and Paul alone, and there are many examples in Scripture, show us that meekness is not Weakness. Meekness simply means that we are merciful when the circumstances call for us to be merciful, and in so doing, we are not mean-spirited. Meekness also means that there will be times when I am maligned, when I am castigated, and I do not need to respond because there is sometimes far more gain in not answering a fool in his folly and allowing the record to stand on its own. Meekness takes wisdom, it takes self-control, and a truly transformed heart that is tender toward the plight of other people. 
So you see, its connection with what else we are going to put on should become clear to us. To be meek, I must be humble. And meekness coupled with with humility is living in accordance with what only God can do and only God can provide. I have what I have because of God, and as easily as I received it, He can take it all away. That should make me meek toward others because God has been so gracious. God has been so merciful toward me. Fifth, the fifth item of clothing is that we are to patiently bear with one another. You know, this one really strikes me because I will readily admit that I can be a bit impatient with others at times. My wife is laughing. This is something you really learn when you have children, how patient you really are not. But my personality, coupled with my military background and the family I grew up in, just leaves me with a sense of urgency, a sense of expectation that everything is going to be done as it should be done, when it needs to be done, and when it's not, I tend to grow impatient with people instead of bearing with them. That's not a godly trait. It can very easily become sinful. It's not wrong to be timely. It's not wrong to be orderly. It's not wrong to want things done correctly. But Paul is reminding us that Christians have an obligation to be patient toward one another. I see this especially with young guys who get a lot of theological knowledge. They read a lot of books. And then someone says something that they disagree with or the person doesn't fully understand them. And so instead of being patient and teaching them or helping them, uh, using some tact, even a little bit goes a long way. They just jump down their throat and they scold them and they mock them and they call them heretics and they walk out on them because they're not being patient. They forget the reality that they didn't learn all that they know overnight. And the reality is if you're acting like that toward others, you probably don't know all that you think you know. Now, beside all of the other apparel that's not being put on in that situation, there certainly is no patience. We need to remember that we, too, were once unknowing. We, too, were once without understanding. And for all the things we grow impatient toward others in, there are certainly things that they grow impatient with us about. And just consider how patient the Lord is with us. How many times have you repented of the same patterns of sin in your life? But the Lord doesn't scold you. The Lord doesn't mock you. He bears with you in patience. So very simply, we can think through this application of verse 12 and ask ourselves, how am I wearing my spiritual clothing? Look good, feel good, play good, or... Did I just roll out of bed and didn't pay attention to what I put on as long as it doesn't stink? Well, Paul goes on and shows us further in the second part of verse 13 that we must put on quick forgiveness. Look again, he says, If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, I know this is never an issue with the people of Redeemer Baptist Church, but apparently 
There are periodically times in the lives of Christians when they have complaints against one another. And Paul thought it wise to address the situation should it rise up at the church in Colossae. Having complaints against one another is a regular occurrence in the church and in the home because in the church and in the home we have sinful people trying to live life next to one another, making decisions, saying things we shouldn't say, using dismissive body language, not giving each other the benefit of the doubt, mishearing things or making assumptions. We could go on and on with the ways that we sin against one another and why we have complaints against one another. So how should we respond? Some people, and sadly this is sometimes the case amongst Christians, some people seem to only be content with the circumstances of life if they are at odds with other people and holding grudges. They move from being at odds with one person to the next and it seems that they are just never able to have peace in reconciled relationships. They often talk about how sometimes you just need to cut people out of your life or they make passive-aggressive statements about knowing who your true friends are based on some arbitrary uh, criteria that they have come up with. It's people who others are scared to get close to because they, they know there's always the possibility that they will have a disagreement or they'll have to confront something in that person's life and the response is going to be hostility. Listen, brothers and sisters, we need to examine our lives really closely, very carefully, and consider if we are doing all that we can, as the Bible says, to live at peace with all men so long as it depends upon us. If not, if the reality is that we are often locked in conflict with others, if the reality is that we never have time, when we can say in our lives, you know, I really don't have anyone that I'm needing to be reconciled with. I have good relationships. If you don't have those times in your life, then the problem is inevitably probably not with everybody else. If you know you have a reputation for being a difficult person to talk to or to confront in your sin or to disagree with because people are afraid you're going to bite their head off, or continue to hold them at an arm's distance, and God forbid, gossip about them and slander about them, then there's a big problem here. And Paul is essentially pointing out that you really haven't grasped the power and transformational nature of the gospel itself. Listen, we are going to have complaints against one another. It's part of life. Believe it or not, there have been times over the past 15 years of marriage that my wife has had complaints against me. I know, shocker. But why is it that we could be happily married over 15 years and counting without any major blow-ups or ongoing hostility or fear that things were on the rocks? Not because we don't have complaints, but because the Lord has helped us to do what Paul says here, forgive one another. It has to happen. We have to be quick to forgive. We have to be willing to put aside our personal wants and what we assume others owe us. Instead, we have to die to ourselves, our preferences, and sometimes we even have to overlook the fact that we've been sinned against by others and simply forgive them. 
And here's what Paul points to. He points to, just as I've pointed out in all of these garments that we must put on, our motivation. What is our motivation? The Lord has forgiven you if you are a Christian. So, Paul tells us, you must forgive others. You aren't given the option. You don't have the luxury of holding grudges and growing bitter toward others. If you have a complaint against someone, you have two options. One, you can get over it and move on, but only if you're able to do so without bitterness and growing a grudge. Or two, you can go talk to that person and seek to be reconciled because there is always a high likelihood that they don't even know there's a problem. If they do, if there is a problem and they know it, you both have an obligation to go to one another. But them not fulfilling their responsibility to come to you does not exclude you from your responsibility to go to them. Most people don't like conflict. Most people don't like having difficult conversations about being sinned against. But in my experience, the quicker we have conversations and deal with those things, the quicker we are reconciled, the better we are because we're able to stop looking at the other person with anger and frustration, and we're able to stop thinking about the situation. We're able to have a clean conscience. We're we're able to have an unburdened heart. Forgiving others is just as much about doing what's best for you as is doing what's best for the other person and your relationship with them. Now, maybe you assume that there's something that was done or that was said that you just, you can't forgive. Or that unless that person comes to you to deal with it, there's no way I'm going to them. They said it, they did it, they're the one who needs to fix it. What's going on in your heart? That is you assuming that you are owed something. That is you assuming that you are worthy of better treatment in this world than you are receiving. That is pride and it leads to hypocrisy because there is no way that you would ever want God to deal with you in the way that you're dealing with other people. Do you remember what Christ forgave you of? Have you ever given thought to how many times and in how many ways you've sinned against Him? The next time you're, you're tempted to hold a grudge or assume you cannot forgive a person for something they have done, no matter how heinous it is, remember the one who created you, the one who sustains you, the one who gives you all that you have and allows you to keep it, to include the very next breath that you draw and remember your most heinous sin against him. And remember that it took nothing less than the death of Christ that you could be a chosen child of God, that you could be called forgiven that you could receive the declaration that even though you are guilty of every one of your sins and thought and deed and word and not only the sins you know but even the ones you don't know and yet still the declaration from heaven because of Christ fulfilling the law in your place, because of Christ dying in your place, because of Christ taking upon himself the full weight of the wrath of God in your place and being buried in the grave in your place and being raised from the dead in your place that you might live forever so that you might be declared not guilty. That is your status. That is how you have been forgiven. And you're going to hold a grudge against someone because of something they said? Listen, sometimes it's really tough to forgive. I understand that. We sin against each other in some really awful ways. But does it compare to spurning your Creator? 
Does it compare to knowing the command of God and disobeying anyway, knowing full well that Christ had to die in order that your sin not be held against you? That changes things, doesn't it? Well, how are all these clothes to be held in place? Paul concludes in verse 14 very simply by telling us to put on love. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul gives us a picture of a man in all of his spiritual clothing. And the man's clothes are beautiful and fine. He got the spiritual on-time fashion shop. And he got there, and he was looking. And in the words of my Nigerian friends, he was looking so sweet. He looked good. (laughs) However, the total package is not quite complete. He needs to hold it all together. He needs to hold it all in place. So he adds a belt, and that belt is love. It is entirely possible to have all five articles of spiritual clothing on, but without a belt of love, they, don't, they just don't look good, and they don't display what you want them to display. Listen, brothers and sisters, it is possible to have some of these other pieces of spiritual clothing and not have love, but it is impossible to have true love, biblical love, and not have those other five garments. Love is what one commentator calls the grace that binds all these other graces together. And that's it, isn't it? Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in tongues of men or angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Nothing. The centrality and supremacy of love among all of the Christian virtues is pervasive throughout the Bible. And listen, without love, without love, knowledge is nothing more than a selfish and arrogant acquisition. Without love, purity is self-righteousness. Without love, zeal is an aimless endeavor. Without love, hope is a fool's deception. Love, as it were, holds them all together in a single coherent package. And if you and I have any hope of putting on the spiritual apparel that Paul has described, we need our hearts fixed on Jesus. And only when our hearts are fixed on Jesus can we then say, Lord, I need to be selfless instead of selfish. And so I need to be confident in my standing with Christ so I'm not trying to earn everyone else's approval. And Lord, I need to be humble instead of harsh and brash because I don't interact with people out of love and compassion for them. I need to be meek. I need to be patient. I need to be full of love. And only when you do these things in me can I truly be kind and meek and forgiving and humble and loving. It must be a work of God. Putting on the spiritual apparel of the Christian can only happen if I am a Christian. And then, if I am abiding in Christ day by day. So that's the question for us today. What are you wearing? What do you have on? The fine spiritual fabric of heaven or the rags of earth? What do you want to show the world with what you wear?